0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com mood. back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Daniel M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Carmen Rita Wong, the author of the recently published Why Didn't You Tell Me? a memoir. Carmen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Danny, for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I am immensely looking forward to it, and I've just realized that our third letter could potentially solve our first letter, because the first letter is about dealing with somebody who's having a mental health crisis. And the -hmm. the next letter is uh, about um, how to handle a colleague who is always armchair diagnosing people. And I wonder if we can just get that person involved in the first one, tell everyone what their diagnosis is, sort them all out.
1: Oh, solve the problem completely. Like magic. Yeah. With a wand.
0: I love that. (laughs) <laughs> okay, that's what we're going to do. I, I think this is going to be great. From now on, I'm going to be answering questions uh, with an eye towards causing as much chaos as possible. Oh. And so I will uh, assign people from certain letters to handle other letters on my behalf. I will deputize them Oh my and I, gosh. I will send in agents of chaos. That is very chaotic. <laughs> then we'll have follow-up. Oh god, that would be that would be an amazing show. I would right? I would definitely listen to that, but that I don't think I don't think that I'm up for doing no. that. Well, I hope that you are feeling, you know, just incredibly bolstered and your truest self because we've got some problems to help people solve today. Are you feeling bolstered and like your truest self? Cuz if not, you should let me know now.
1: Oh, let me tell you, Danny. Never in my life have I felt more of my truest self. So you got me at a good time.
0: All right. Okay. Let's dance, baby. Y'all.
1: Would you read our first letter? Sure. Okay. So the first one is, I'm the youngest of six siblings. I'm in my fifties living in different cities. My older brother, Barry lives in Seattle and our closest sibling is a five hour drive away. Barry was hospitalized twice for paranoid delusions in the early 2000s. He recovered and was able to get a great job and stay married. But about six years ago, his psychiatrist encouraged him to discontinue his meds. Since then he's spiraled. He's divorced and believes his ex-wife was trying to kill him. She wasn't, has lost his job, and since 2019 has believed that the rest of his siblings are, quote, microdosing him. We're worried, but haven't been able to do much. This week, Barry's ex forwarded us a foreclosure notice. He's going to be foreclosed upon within 30 days. He hasn't paid his mortgage since the spring, and the bank wants $24,000 immediately. A family friend who works with a mental health agency is trying to get a lawyer to help slow the process. We feel the best case scenario is that we postpone the foreclosure, sell the house, pay off the debt, and then try to get him into some kind of housing. But that's a difficult prospect if Barry won't speak to us. His phone is
0: disconnected. Thoughts? So I can also slightly remove the pressure from this one because it's kind of intense. Mm. Uh, Just by letting you know, uh, this letter is m- more than thirty days old. So yeah, yeah, uh, it's it's from September. Um, I'm working through a backlog of of questions. So it, enough time has passed that like the immediate crisis, like what either they managed to work something out with the bank or they didn't. Um, generally speaking, if you've got lawyers and family friends and mental health agencies, kind of able to help you out, it's likely that they were able to at least buy themselves a little bit more time, but it's also certainly possible that they're in like a very different situation now.
1: I hope so. I hope they were able to to reach him because I've dealt with this myself with a, a mentally ill family member and you try to help and help and help. But if they're not ill enough to be put away by other people, meaning that you have the legal ability to get them help, they are treated as adults, even if they are very mentally ill. And that means sometimes you just can't help as much as you'd like.
0: Yeah, and I think specifically one of the limits that you might need to be working with is, uh, you know, my, my kind of limited layman's understanding, as well as some, like, background Investigating into like the British Columbia Schizophrenia Society and a couple of other experts in the field, my understanding is that it's generally not encouraged that you try to argue with someone in an active delusion. Mm-hmm. Um, that that usually, you know, just by like laying out the facts and trying to explain, no, I promise, no one's microdosing you, does not actually enable somebody who is, you know, dealing with delusions to say, oh, I recognize this logic. Thank you. I no longer have the delusion. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Um, yeah,
1: correct. I mean, this is not logical.
0: Yeah. So hopefully the letter writer and 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 her siblings have been able to try at least to make contact without trying to argue to find a point. Uh, yeah. But that does, of course, limit your ability in some ways, because if you try to talk to him, even if you try to establish a rapport, don't try to contest his delusions, but like stress that you want him to be safe and taken care of, mm-hmm. uh, especially if a specific goal like, I think, you know, it would be good for you to talk with your psychiatrist right now. Um, Like, do you think that they would be helpful?
1: Yeah, can we talk about that psychiatrist for a second?
0: Well, and I'm curious. Because that is, that angered me so much. I was curious whether or not that was like, I I was wondering, like, did Barry say my psychiatrist told me to go off my meds? Right. Or did Barry decide to go off of his meds? And then among his other delusions, believed that his psychiatrist had encouraged him to do so.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, those are the questions, That was my suspicion, really. Mm -hmm. was like,
0: I'd be a little bit surprised if the psychiatrist actually said that. Because that would be, oof. Yeah, I mean, again, I also don't know, like maybe there were really debilitating side effects. Maybe the um, psychiatrist had suggested replacing it with a new medication that Barry then didn't. Like there was just too many um, possibilities there for me to feel like definitely rule out whoever the psychiatrist, because maybe there's a new psychiatrist. I don't know. Um, Anyways, lots of open-ended questions, but certainly I think it would be useful to at least encourage a doctor's appointment of some kind. And so I feel like one possible strategy could be hearing Barry out and saying like, with all that's going on, do you think it would help you to see a doctor or talk to one of the medical professionals that you do have a relationship with without contesting the delusion? But again, if he thinks you're trying to poison him and you try to have this conversation, even where you're being pretty um, restrained in terms of any interventions you offer, if he ultimately decides just like, I don't trust you, don't talk to me, I'm not able to listen to you, that, that might be itself a limiting factor. You might not be able to push past that right now. And, and that might be difficult. And that, I think that's part of why I wanted to encourage this letter writer to also really like lean on their siblings for support, try to figure out together how you can look out for one another if the first move is rebuffed and you have to stand back and know he's going to lose the house and there's not much we can do about it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's rough. I have an uncle who's paranoid schizophrenic that I've been kind of working on and off with most of my life. And even now, the one thing that has helped, you know, he decided at one point to go off of his meds and things got very bad. And what happened was I can talk to his social worker and his social worker can talk to me. And then I encourage him to see her, to talk to her, to get on his meds. And a lot of it is just having those conversations, not necessarily even in person, but it is that kind of gentle guiding that you say, like that gentle, like, let's go get some help. Like, we really just want you to feel better, you know, and not arguing those points because the delusions are real to them. Yeah. So it's just really about guiding them to the people that are going to help. And in terms of, I really hope they were able to get a hold of him, of course.
0: Right. I imagine that would have involved at least one five-hour drive. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't sound like he has, like, a really rich network of friends in the area if he, like, has separated from his ex. And, you know, again, it, I think the letter had said at, at one point, I might have edited this for, for time, in which case I apologize, but mentioned that it was pretty acrimonious, the divorce. So I don't I assumed. know.
1: Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I just was the, like... Yeah, I assumed.
0: My guess was there weren't a lot of, like, really close friends of Barry's that the siblings could kind of tap into in the area. But certainly if there are any... Even just like friendly former co-workers that you could maybe ask to to check in with him, I'd encourage you to do that. But my guess is probably you won't be able to get much help from the ex-wife if only because he thinks you're only microdosing him, but he thinks she's trying to kill him, so he'll probably be a lot more resistant to any attempted contact by her.
1: Yeah, and she's the one who forwarded the foreclosure notice. And I I get the language like forwarded us a foreclosure note. She didn't like call and talk it through and right, see that how lady's we can help. Tired. You know, I was like, she is done.
0: She is very, very done. This
1: is done. Yeah. It's it's it, mental illness is very difficult, especially as siblings, you know, um, and family members. It's you can feel very, very guilty and responsible, but there's only so much you can do. So I just encourage this letter writer to not feel completely awful about not necessarily finding success right away and just kind of gently keep at it.
0: Yeah. I will, um, in the show notes, I'll post a link to just a sort of like really basic primer that the um, BCSS has about like, how do I have a conversation with somebody I love who's experiencing delusions in a way mm-hmm. that it's like maximally helpful? Um, And so there's just kind of, you know, a a long list about, you know, uh, different ways about like not arguing, ways that you can try to establish some trust, try to redirect towards certain small incremental goals, things to avoid. Um, None of that's like a recipe for getting what you want out of somebody in a single perfect conversation, but that might prove helpful for you and your siblings, as well as, you know, if you're able to talk to on your own time, a psychiatrist or a mental health professional that you trust, not necessarily that you need to all go get therapists, but just like, I have a sibling who experiences paranoid delusions. What should I be prepared for? How can I be most helpful? Um, just getting any sort of tips from from anyone who's an expert in the field. Because um, sometimes you might think like, I'll just go in there and like use my common sense or just try to remind my sibling of of who they they used to to be. And that might feel intuitive in the moment, but can actually be counterproductive. And so I want to try to help them from I don't know. I just remember That's like I great. used to watch I used yeah. to watch like hoarders all the time in like oh, college. Yes. And yes. their like mental health help was always somebody who would basically just show up and be like, you should really throw your stuff away. Oh. And then we'd like throw a bunch of stuff away and they'd be like, incredibly agitated and distressed. And they would just be like, you got to throw it out.
1: And Talk like about obviously Talk that's, about a band-aid. That's terrible. That's like reductive. Yeah, I'm sure that there terrible. were some people
0: on the show who did their best, but it really felt like they were just being like, oh, you should throw out your stuff. And it was like, well, if that was going to help, that yeah. would have helped a while ago. This is not appropriate mental health treatment. Which is
1: why all those shows actually really bothered me. <laughs> because it was very much about the production as opposed to, you know, the help and but for, for this this letter writer though, I would also recommend you know, having gone through this myself, what really helped was if you can track down whoever he's getting treatment from. Yeah. Even in the past. And I know that there, of course, are doctor patients. Right? Yeah,
0: you're not gonna be able to just call and be like, hey, did you treat
1: this guy. But as direct family members, you can see, you know, speak with someone who has treated him or is treating him, and they can at least guide you like like you're saying that you're posting you know how to talk to this person um how best to get you know him to get more help as such they can do that and it's very helpful because they they know them a bit yeah
0: yeah so you know certainly i i hope that your family friends found that lawyer i hope that's been useful i also i imagine you're probably not going to get a best case scenario out of this maybe you are that would be wonderful but I, I think it's good to have a couple of medium and worst case scenarios that you can plan for, and that will include, you know, letting yourself grieve or express like your own frustrations or your own stress as you try to help deal with this from afar, because that's really challenging. So yeah. uh, I hope you're all able to find ways to look after yourselves and and to try to figure out like how do I, you know, help deal with my brother in like a chronic and ongoing way, where I'm not going to be able to solve this probably ever and he will probably deal with delusions to some degree or another for the rest of his life
1: yeah
0: um and so you know what is what what do best case scenarios look like given that kind of feedback and what will i do if my sister drives down and it's rebuffed or if one of us flies out and it's rebuffed um how will i you know grieve that and then also let go of some of the hopes that uh, we're totally reasonable none of this is to say like you know, you've been dreaming too big. Like, it's really understandable that you would hope that you could try to recoup some of the significant financial loss that your brother is having yeah. to experience. But it's also, I think, just useful to live as close to reality as you can in terms of just like, there might be a lot of money that we're never going to see again, that Barry's right. never going to see again. It can
1: be very expensive, though, of course, it, it, yeah, it depends because they could make it his financial responsibility and then they can help him outside of that. Meaning, so make make the what to do the bank's, you know, uh, responsibility. But I'll say this. I hope his life before he got off those meds sounded pretty good. Meaning he had the job, you know, he was married. I, it, it seemed like that's when things really fell apart. You know, it, it can be managed. So if he gets that help, he could pull his life together. And as long as he knows, you know, this letter writer can let him know, let him know that you're there for him. I know he thinks, you know, you're microdosing. There's all of those things, but something can get through for sure.
0: Well, and that's the thing I think is like you try and then if you're not able to on this go around, you know, leave the door open, hope that at some point in the future, you can try again. You know, if you can't call him right now, find a time when you might be able to try to visit. If that's not possible right now, let, let one of your closer siblings get out there and see if there's a way you can help I don't know, pay for some of the gas, yeah. um, call yeah. them before and after, you know, to help support them. If if one thing doesn't work, wait, recover a little, try something like get in this one for the long haul. I, I agree. It would be wonderful if he were able to, you know, make another appointment with his medical team. Um, if he could be encouraged to try his medication again. Again, my guess is it's, it's pretty challenging. Um, and for good reason. It is pretty challenging to involve the state in getting someone to take medication against their will.
1: But maybe he can be encouraged to go back on. I know that, you know, that worked um, for my uncle, but it takes time. It takes time and trust. But teaming up together as a family is always a good idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And especially, I think, spreading the word with the other siblings of making sure everyone's on the same page of, if we do get FaceTime with Barry... Please don't spend that time trying to argue with him about the delusions. That doesn't mean if he accuses you of something, you have to say, yes, I did it. But like, don't make jokes about it. Sometimes people want to do kind of gallows humor stuff about it. And that's really not advised when, again, if this is like you are with your other siblings venting afterwards at a diner, you can do gallows humor if you need to. But when you are with him, don't make jokes about any of the delusions. Don't dismiss them. Don't say, yes, I'm doing this. Um, you can like generically affirm, I care about you. I really want you to be safe. You're safe with me now. I I can commit. I'm not going to hurt you. I don't want to hurt you. Those are all things that you can safely do and say, but yeah, making sure you're all on the same page is going to be hugely important. Cause if like three of you are, and then one of you is just like, no, I've got to fight with him about this. I've got to disagree. The disruptor in the family. Yeah. Right. Then that will make (laughs) things a lot harder. And so making sure you're on the same page will, will be crucial, I think. For sure. For sure. And good luck. I'm really, really sorry. This is really, really challenging.
1: And it can be like a lifelong um, thing. And I, you know, I tried to take care of my uncle and another family member got involved and kind of um, blocked me from helping. So that can happen too, to your point of like, if there's that one family member that's not on the same page, Mm -hmm. that can really just throw everybody's plans out the window. So, Try as you can and, um, you know, lead with love and information. Get as much information as you can on what he's struggling with and who he's dealing with.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's it. And, and um, you know, if anyone listening is a mental health professional with any particular expertise in talking to somebody who's experiencing delusions, please certainly um, write and let us know other suggestions that you might have, other things that you would encourage letter writer. Literators like this to bear in mind, Um, not necessarily just this one scenario, but just generally speaking, because I think there's lots of like sort of like generally disseminated like stuff on like social media. That's like how to talk to someone with depression. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that one. What about delusions? That's more rare. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get that one. Let's get that one circulating, please.
1: Yes. And in some ways, a little bit more pressing Because that gets, you know, it gets into, if you do the wrong thing, it can have worse consequences in some ways. Because delusions are strong. Delusions are reality to them. So, yeah. yeah. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously
0: and... 6-1 So now kind of on the other end of of things, the other side of this coin, our next letter is about somebody who sees diagnoses everywhere and is ready to hand them out to anyone. Uh, Hmm. You don't even have to ask. Just here, have one. Um, And and so the letter writer is trying to figure out how to deal with this armchair diagnoser. And I love that this is in uh, the real estate industry because (laughs) I think real estate (laughs) agents are absolutely bananas like they combine gosh they combine the weirdness of like small business owners and like deranged entrepreneur culture with like landlord shit Mm -hmm. Um, so you just you just get like some real messiness and as I I think I had occasion to say recently because I saw a bunch of posters of of them I was like I think the strongest force in nature is a mother-daughter real estate team because they're always like putting ads where they're standing back to back yeah like matching pantsuits like arms crossed and they're just I like no
1: one and it's do you really it's scary yeah oh, very successful fight, but it's it a little terrifying, terrifying. <laughs> let's just put it this way i wouldn't want to be going against them uh in any way in terms of a sale
0: i would do anything but like if if i crossed the path of a mother daughter real estate team like i would i would just be like my goal is to get out of this situation alive. <laughs> i'm not going to disagree with anything they have to say if they, if they tell me to, like, kill my best friend, I'll be like, you got it. And then, mm-hmm. like, leave and try to find out a, a way to get out of it. But I'm not going to say so. Made of steel. So now everyone knows my weakness. Mother-daughter real estate teams.
1: Ah, now um, I know.
0: <laughs> I will read this letter <laughs> before I reveal any more of my weaknesses. Subject is armchair expertise. I have a colleague who likes to diagnose people as if she's a psychologist. She's a real estate agent. She talks to a psychologist friend of hers about all the people in her life in order to diagnose them by proxy, then tells these people what's wrong with them based on her diagnosis. She doesn't even know most of these people very well, so of course she makes many inaccurate and unfair assumptions about them. She's done this for years. Many other colleagues have commented about it, but we don't really know how to escape it. I try to minimize the time I spend with her, and I definitely don't share anything personal, But aside from cutting the entire relationship loose, is there any other way to address this? mm mm -mm. I was curious, did you get a sense from this letter that she's, like, diagnosing other people in the office? Or like when people are like, "I have a house to sell," she's like, "You're a narcissist." Oh, I, they, I think they borderline per- for like, everyone, just everybody,
1: everyone. Danny, folks like this, you know that they do it. They could be in line in the grocery store in the checkout person and be like, "Let me tell you what she did, and this is what I, she is." You I, know I, like, that was OCD behavior, and it's so awful.
0: I th- I don't think I know anyone quite like this. I mean, I I I have known people who have been like slightly inclined to armchair diagnose an ex or two or a parent or two, Mm -hmm. but they usually have confined it to that. They don't, I I don't think I've ever met anyone who's like, I diagnose people a lot. Yeah. Um, So I'm a little, I I have to admit this, I'm a little intrigued and I, I hate to say it, but I think if she were my colleague, I would maybe, for my own amusement, encourage her to share a lot of these diagnoses with me and maybe even egg her on because I thought it was funny.
1: Until the mirror is turned on you, and no, then until, you know, exactly, and, then, and you're going to be like, "Woman, you don't know
0: anything." No, you that would blow anything, up in my. You know. I would, that would blow up in my face so bad. I would yeah. be involved in so much interpersonal conflict. Uh, I would deeply regret my bad behavior. Um, well, so don't do that, letter writer.
1: No, but you know the people that I have known who have come close to this. They, you know, who tend to do this sort of thing. Not real estate agents, actually. It was, Like when I was in graduate school in psychology, like this is like one of those things that the grad students do, right? It's just kind of uh, like doctors, you know, going to med school and trying to diagnose everything or thinking they have everything. But to that point, it sounds to me, folks like this, a lot of these folks actually are unsure of themselves very much. And it's a lot of projection. And a so, lot so what, of control, like take her on a
0: self-esteem retreat until she feels good. No, that she no, stops no. Doing it?
1: It's it's it's. She needs she needs to look in inward, sister, inward, because all of that out, out, out is is the signal that she's not looking where she should be looking, which is inside.
0: I guess I think the thing that's so curious to me is I would feel like if because it doesn't sound like she's giving people flattering diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's like, oh yes, you are like very interesting and complicated. Like she's not telling everyone they're indigo children. Um, and I feel like since so much of like the real estate industry has to do with at least like, at least like a shallow veneer of like warmth and approachability, I feel like that would really limit her ability to sell a lot of house. I don't know if I was trying to like buy a house and my real estate agent was just like, oh, heads up. I think you have all kinds of DSM six in you. I'd be offended, and I would maybe just say like, "What an odd thing to say! Don't sell my, don't buy me a house. That's not how real estate agents work." You know what I mean? So I was wondering, like, why aren't more people just like
1: saying to her face, "Fuck you!" Like, why would she tell people? Like, I understand if you're doing it as kind of like this, you know, very kind of sick game. Whereas, like, you're in the office and you're bored, and so you start diagnosing people that you deal with, but you only but do to it their through, to your, not to their faces, right? You do it, you know, but to actually to tell people. What's wrong with them? My child, you are going to not do well in life because one day she's going to come up against somebody who
0: is going to tell her what's what. Ideally, she'll come up against somebody who also armchair diagnoses people and mm. tells her what diagnosis has led her to do all the improper armchair diagnosing, and they can just have a battle.
1: Well, I tell you, it would be an ugly scene, Danny, if somebody came up to me and tried to, <laughs> and knew me for five minutes and tried to tell me. <laughs> you know, you did that. And, and you know what? You're this. And I'd be like, excuse me. Oh, let me tell you, Dominican mama face would come on so fast
0: <laughs> and,
1: you know, probably burn you to the ground. I, it, it's not good. But in terms of the advice as to like how to deal with this person, mm-hmm. just, I, you know, I people sometimes are just so afraid of conflict that it's, as you know, very well that it's they're They're willing to just let go of the relationship, even if it is a relationship they need to have professionally and just kind of saying, you know, I noticed you like to do this. It's not, maybe it doesn't go, you know, why? And then kind of be curious about why this person is doing this and try to get at the root of it. And it might be a self-esteem issue, which is I'm assuming and a control issue and trying to make, you know, be above because when you can say you're this and you're that, then it's like, you're putting yourself above folks. But to get it and and have a talk about like, look, I'm trying to help you professionally, right? I'm trying to really help you professionally here. This is not going to go well. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But somehow to approach it without, you know, bad conflict, I'm getting, I'm feeling like maybe there's fear here in terms of actually talking about it.
0: Right. I was like, does she sell the most houses or something? Like, why are you? Because the thing to me is like, she alienates a lot of people. So to me, I would feel like, what's there to be afraid of? Like, if she gets mad at you, no one's going to be on her side. No one's going to be like, oh, you really should have let her keep doing that. So I would say like, maybe you have a lot of options. Certainly you can just ignore her. Like my understanding of real estate agents is that like, you might be sort of like loosely under the same affiliation, but you don't It's not like you rely on her to sell houses on your own necessarily. So I think there's probably a limit to how much you need her. So like that really opens up the playing field. You could certainly ignore her. You're not like, I don't know, it's not your job to like fix this lady. If you just want to be like, I have a weird colleague, I avoid her. That's fine. Um, Or if you just during one of your minimal interactions, if she does it again, you can just say like, you know, I really don't like it when you diagnose people. Please stop. Like that's fine. You could even go further and be like, I've noticed you've been doing this for years. I think it's really weird. Why do you do this and ask and, and listen? You can do that too. That's also fine. But any of those options like well, do not got take one, a lot of preparation.
1: i one, for, for one more for Please. you. Please. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. Is, this is only if you actually care about this person. So I actually do this with my young teenager <laughs> because this is very like young teenage behavior, right? It's like, black and white behavior, like you're bad. This person hates me or this person's doing this and this person's mean and blah, blah, blah. And you say, well, could, what, why do you think they did that to get them to put themselves in that person's shoes to be like, well, maybe she was tired. Maybe she was hungry. Maybe she was, you know, stressed out about something. Don't you get mm-hmm. stressed out? Are you yeah. crazy? I mean, and, and that's a horrible <laughs> thing to say to somebody because she's, you know, she's using words like that word, the C word, you know, she's using, these words and it's very, it's it's negative, completely negative. But that's just something I try to do with my daughters, just kind of like, oh, if this person and she was she was mean. Well, maybe she's tired, maybe she's hungry, maybe she's very stressed out. Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with you. We all are like this at some time, and kind of making it like. It diffuses the idea that she has power to say this person is mentally ill. Like, this person is sick this way. Instead, it's, we all sick, sister. Okay, we all got, we all got, you got to stop because this it it holds no weight, carries no water.
0: Yeah. Yeah, or even just say, like, what an odd thing to say. Um, Like, that's a kind of classic for a reason. Yeah. Um, and then my last, because I again, I really don't think that you should encourage her and egg her on just for the sake of shit stirring. But if you wanted to, make up imaginary diagnoses and say things like, oh, I disagree. I think she has a ponus syndrome. And then no more information, fake a phone call, leave the room.
1: Oh. So she can't ask
0: you, what's that? And you have to make her think, oh my God, there's a new diagnosis. And I didn't know about, my psychologist friend didn't share it with me. I'm no longer on the cutting edge of this game. And just my, keep one-upping her.
1: My, my man, that's that's oh great. That's She's got pin, look at you she's got Pimpillion syndrome. There, <laughs> there you go. and then you know very she's going to go and like Google it. As you know, I've never heard of this. What is this? Blah blah blah. And you just you just hold your ground. Hold oh, your ground.
0: Very rare. Yeah, <laughs> she's got triple compulsive disorder. Yeah, um, probably won't want to do that. No. Um, I like how like earlier I was like, now don't joke about somebody's delusions like you know be like calm and take things seriously and now just for some reason because this is a work issue I'm just like be maximally like a shithead well the stakes Um, are
1: not so high right right, and and what I love is that the first two sentences the way it's written it's like who likes to diagnose people's issues psychologist she's a real real estate agent agent. yeah (laughs) yeah no it's it's too much and it's not worth it but if you gotta work with this person Defuse that bomb. Just defuse. Tell her to it. knock
0: it off. Just tell her yeah. it's not welcome. Like she's at work. It's a totally reasonable thing to say. Stop diagnosing people where at work. And frankly, I think once you do it, other people are probably going to start to back you up. Uh, I really don't think you have to worry about everyone suddenly being like, "No, she's wonderful. We love it when oh, she does that." Yes. How could she gave you? Me
1: such insight into yeah. my own psychology.
0: Yeah. Oh, I learned so much about myself that day.
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah.
0: No. Well. Let us know which of those options you choose. And if you need more names for fake diseases, because I will (laughs) happily, happily send them to you. Um, This also feels like kind of an inappropriate moment to ask you to talk a little bit about the book, since we're talking about things like what should you disclose? What should you withhold? Mm. um, What do you do when you learn something that has been withheld from you for a while? And yeah, I would just love it if you could tell us a little bit about the book and how that's been going.
1: Oh my goodness! Well, it's it's been a lot in the sense of you know you go through the um, process of writing it or even just you know getting it sold right, and then it goes out there and it's my first, it's my fifth book, but my first um, memoir, of course, and hardcover and it's crown and all that, so it was a big deal and a dream to get it done. So it's great, but talking about this issue, it's been very interesting to see what a Rorschach test my life is for readers. So my mother hid, of course, my origin story and basically told, um, a couple of, uh, untruths, which she took to her grave. And I lived as one person for 31 years. And then I lived as supposedly another person for another 14 years. And then the truth comes out and it all made me look at and define and redefine myself, um, ethnically, culturally, racially, and my fam- and who my family members are, mm-hmm. right? But the idea, too, that we moved from Harlem, you know, as a Dominican Chinese, as my older brother and I are the Wongs, to New Hampshire, when my mother's second husband was an Anglo-American man, to whiteness. We went from completely, you know, brown and Asian, brown, black, and Asian, to a place of just whiteness, where we were the only ones who weren't that shaped me so much as well. So seeing who, you know, who, who the reader is, I I get back different ideas of where people connect. And it's really interesting because everybody of every background connects in some way, Hmm. because Danny, it's like, the question always is, as you know, very well is who am I? And we're all figuring ourselves out. Right, and you get to a certain point in life and you get to look back and especially for me, you know the immigrant story is not necessarily always shown as the American story, but it is very, very deeply an American story um that needs to be told a lot and because it helps everyone understand and I've heard from people who are many generations of the United States, you know, white Americans who are just like, "I had no idea this has shown me." what immigrant experience is really like. Um, And it's made me see immigrants differently. And then, you know, the Latino community I've heard from, you know, Afro Latinos have been like, thank you. Um, Chino Latinos have been like, thank you. (laughs) People who have discovered who their parents are later in life. It can really rip your soul in some ways, but it can also be incredibly healing. And people have asked me, which really applies to, you know, me being a very big fan of, of what you do here. Um, the idea of forgiveness or not, you know, people have asked, so, so you forgive your mother? Because I'm quite generous in how I write about her and my father's with an S, multiple S's. Um, and there are no villains because I write about them and I, I answer that question, you know, why didn't you tell me by looking at her as a person, as mm-hmm. an individual, not as my mother, just as a, as a, as a person, a survivor um, from a very horrific childhood and regime in another country to come here. And in that way, I found my peace, but I did not, I, I don't forgive and forgiveness to me requires apology, which mm-hmm. I haven't gotten from anyone and a change in behavior and everyone's had the chance to do those things and they haven't, fine. But that's, I don't have to give them, forgive has given it. That's why I always lean on. I'm like, as the word given it? Like you hurt me and I'm gonna give you something for what? You know, it's about them more. I, I see it as that way, not as the Catholic forgive. I see it as it's something you're giving someone who's hurt you. I see them as people. And let me tell you, Danny, it has brought me so much more peace And understanding as to all of my familial relationships and who my family is, not just biologically, but very much the family that I've had to create myself
0: with my friends. I think that's such a useful idea about decoupling forgiveness from the idea of seeing people holistically letting go of some resentments or even moving on with your life such that they're all different things and you might choose to do some or all of them, um, but it it isn't just a decision between either you forgive someone or you are stuck in the sort of like primal scene, eternally wounded, never able to um, recover an idea of like a a self or a family or a future.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and I find that... Unfortunately, maybe it's because, you know, talk about diagnosing, um, being raised by narcissists, um, you very much, there's this idea of like, you have to forgive them, mm. you know, and forgiveness is kind of elevated as this, like, if you don't forgive, you're a bad person. And I've spent years kind of deconstructing all of those thoughts and ways of thinking about all of this stuff. And also 15 years of weekly therapy, Danny, 15 mm-hmm. years. That sounds um, well, right? And my own graduate degree in psychology, I, I really, to look at, you know, how I can look at this more clearly and as myself, as opposed to the voices in my head. And I don't feel, I'm, you're not a bad person if you don't forgive someone who's hurt you, but you can see them with empathy. You can understand them and their choices and make peace with that, that they did what they did and you are who you are and you can move on and some yeah. people may say well that sounds like forgiveness well call it whatever you will <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Moving i think it's something
0: distinct but yeah I, I think that's partly because often people have conflated uh anything like healing acceptance moving on with forgiveness mm-hmm. when i i think i share your understanding of forgiveness is like a pretty involved process that has to do with at least some sort of reparation of a relationship not necessarily that you become besties but like it's not this this totally um abstract thing you do in isolation. Although, yeah, maybe somebody else feels that they do it that way. But I'm curious, you mentioned that you'd heard from a, a lot of different people about your experience with the book. Did you ever hear from anyone who had been in your mother's position or was it more either oh, wow, um, people who had been in your position or just kind of people who were curious about like your life story?
1: Oh, wow. Danny, that's a great question. I have not. Mm-hmm. I have not, because here's the thing, and, and you're saying that, no, what I hear from is I hear from adults who have found out that they have another parent. Of course, it's a father usually, or you know, um, their aunt is actually their mother, that sort of thing. But I'll tell you why I think why, because as I understand from my mother and why she hid this so much, when I tell you the shenanigans, she had a couple of men a couple of my fathers at the same time for decades thinking that they were my father. Um, Most of my life. Yes. And they kept it a secret too. So, you know, this woman, I do have to marvel at her skill um, (laughs) and give props to that. But I think a lot of it, of course, has to deal with being a brown woman, a brown immigrant in this country, a woman, you know, uh, coming from a home of abuse and the first marriage was abusive and all this stuff. And I think this was really about survival. And then in the end, it was about curating who she was in other people's eyes and who she was in my eyes. And I definitely loved writing, um, the last couple of chapters because I kind of pull it together as to like how I figured out you know, why she did what she did. And If she had told me or I, you know, it would have all fallen apart. Yeah. And there was a lot of fear of losing me and a lot of fear of losing the fathers (laughs) and losing face. So she had a lot to lose, but had she started out with the truth or even, you know, said the truth before she passed, she had that chance, but she couldn't do it. You know, so I don't think I'm gonna hear from people who have done this themselves because there's so much shame involved. So much shame.
0: I, I think that makes some sense to me. It seems like that's a decision where either you feel so anxious at the idea of of the truth becoming known that you're not willing to reach out to somebody who's written about the subject, even if part of you might want to, or ultimately. Sometimes if you carry on in that kind of lie for long enough, you begin to believe it. And then you would not feel a need to unburden yourself or reach out to somebody who had written a book like this because you would just feel like, I'm normal. Things are normal.
1: Oh, I did hear from somebody who found out that they had a different father and confronted her mother with the DNA. Mm-hmm. And the mother content- refused. Refused. Yeah. Said, nope. Yeah. It's a lie. It's a lie. And she took the DNA test again. And it wow. showed again. And she was like, nope. That's not right. That's not your father, even in the face of science. So there is, you know, to bring it back to delusions, you know, there is this kind of, I'm going to hold on to this so tight because if I were to let it out, I would fall apart. My world that I have constructed would fall apart. And that is like death to some people.
0: Oh, yeah. Don't I know it. mm mm-hmm. um. mm-hmm obviously in 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 many ways it is a a distinct and a different situation but in terms of learning something new about parents relatively later in life as well as then seeing people having to make peace with an untenable or an unlivable situation so that they continue to live with it is itself like a pretty pretty remarkable thing and um i think the the last time that my mother attempted to contact me was probably a little over a year and a half ago and I didn't see it directly, but it was some expression of sadness at at, at like some sweet conversation that my brother and I had had years before and some Mm. sadness that we weren't close now. And it just felt like really deranged. Yeah. Um, Just like there's actually an incredibly clear reason that we are not close right now. Yeah. And and the fact that you're not able to acknowledge that in this moment is just, um, it's a sort of horrifying look at what you have to give up in order to live in like a, a really foundational kind of lie.
1: Yeah. Because not seeing you right here, right now, but mourning for that boy, that conversation, that other person that she has, she, you know, she has an idea and that's the thing is that when you lie to yourself and, um, others, uh, you know, about something so, huge um as your uh, identity or your origin story or that sort of thing it, it causes such distance um it robs you of so much my mother and i were our relationship was so contentious for so many reasons and i just wanted a mother to love me but there was an idea of me instead and i didn't fit that idea so we both lost out One of the pledges I've always made to myself was that, you know, that I I was going to have to live in truth. And I myself came out in what I'm going to say in my mid 40s as queer. And that was something that was incredibly difficult for me to do. But I had a daughter and she made very clear at a very young age that she was queer. And she and I was like, how dare I be like my mother? (laughs) How dare I? No, really. I was like, she's brave enough to do it. And. I really needed to find it myself, first of all. I knew it always, but I buried it buried it because it was bad enough that I was a girl or a woman and brown with a Chinese mm-hmm. name. You know, it, going through life like that during the 70s and 80s and 90s was kind of brutal. <laughs> so, and then doing it on TV and doing it in magazines, like it was very public. You're like, existence. I'm busy. I have enough. I was busy, but I was also like, I can't manage one more mark against me that society will put on me. And I really had hoped that in college I could be myself, but I was, it was, there was so much racism. I was like, I can't, I can't, I just couldn't do it. Um, And I think that that's very complicated for um, people of color when they, you know, are like, okay, do I come out or not? But now with this generation, like younger generation, I just, I'm so inspired. I was so inspired and I was like, oh, mommy too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, hell yeah. We're doing this. Yeah. Let's let's go.
1: And I, I, unfortunately I couldn't keep it in the book. Um, The, you know, I had a chapter, but I I couldn't keep the book because, you know, we were trying to really focus on the secret in the end. Mm -hmm. And my publisher was like, you know, this is also another identity that you're kind of grappling with and, and, and discovered. But we, you know, we got to focus on the, you know, the DNA part. And I was like, okay. (laughs) <laughs> I'll save this yeah, for fair. something else. Save it for the sixth book. But it, it's in my heart. It's very much in my heart because it's a very important part of my identity that I, yeah. I, 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 regardless of gender, I'm attracted to people regardless of gender, always have been since I was a little kid.
0: And when can we expect your next exciting gay book?
1: Oh my God! That me? I've now
0: decided you have to <laughs> write. Yeah.
1: Oh my goodness. Well, first I have to have um, an actual queer life, but um, mostly it's uh, the paperback you
0: heard it here fo- first, folks. If you want to go out with Carmen, <laughs> please write to me, Danny Lavery. DMs
1: are open. Um, the paperback comes out in August. So right now the the book is out there. I'm working on my uh, novel, which is very exciting. Um, and the research is, is wonderfully exciting, partially based in, in fact and quite a bit based not. But um, the protagonist is um, queer pan woman. So there you go. Maybe a little bit of me in there.
0: There you go. Um, and, you know, sorry for suggesting that everyone who listens to the show tries to ask you out. Ah! Um, but I will I will, um, you know, can you use pass an I can individual. use all help
1: again, you know,
0: <laughs> Carmen, uh, you are just such a delight. And I hope that we get to have you back on the show sometime in the very near future. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you so much, Danny. I'm a big fan. Love what you do. Thank you for having me on
0: right back at you. here's a preview of our slate plus episode coming this friday the way you feel about your own libido is i think almost as important as your libido itself like the difference between my libido is low but that feels connected to menopause and i'm really miserable about it yeah is so like that, that, that description of like i feel like i lost part of my connection with life i felt like yeah, part of me had completely, died completely. is so different from somebody else who might have a low libido and say i feel great about it So I think as important as kind of trying to gauge where's my libido at is also, does that feel satisfying to me? Do I feel kind of inert and neutral about it? Do I feel pleased about it and like it enables me to focus my time and energy elsewhere? To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.